always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and welcome to a special emergency perhaps edition of Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. Yesterday afternoon, Boris Johnson bowed to the inevitable and announced he would resign as leader of the Conservative Party. His announcement followed an unprecedented wave of resignations from his government, whose members had decided that enough was enough. Two men who were first-hand witnesses to these historic events join me now. Our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and I'm delighted to say Patrick Maguire, political correspondent of The Times. Dennis, so we've all been watching Agog, you know. Um, I, 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 likened, uh, I likened it the other night to it's the, the World Cup final for political nerds, but somebody else corrected me that uh, it was more like Love Island for political nerds. But it all looks like uh, tremendous fun looking in from the outside. What's it been like there on the inside, as it were? Well, it's been pretty bizarre, really. I mean, I can't think of any 48 hours that's been like it uh, anywhere that I've been politically in that just the kind of the, uh, first of all, the scale of it, just this torrent of uh, resignations, many of them by people that nobody had ever heard of, but still, nonetheless, there was a certain kind of, uh, you know, power in the numbers. And then just the way in which uh, Boris Johnson, as I suppose he always has throughout his career, that he just defined all of the normal rules and conventions of how you respond to this kind of thing by saying no, no, no to, uh, you know, each time something would happen and then, uh, you know, that, 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 that would drive most other people out of, uh, out of power. And then when he did finally announce that he was going, he gave such an incredibly graceless uh, speech outside and once again broke that kind of convention where you, uh, where you, do, where you give some sort of dignified speech and you uh, acknowledge your own faults and you thank everybody. He didn't thank any of his ministers, any of his MPs. He suggested, essentially, that the Conservative Party had gone mad and was making an enormous mistake. And so, in a sense, you know, it was, uh, you know, each plot twist was one that you couldn't really necessarily have predicted. And certainly it didn't go by the normal playbook. So it was, it was very dramatic. Dems the breaks uh, is hardly likely to go down as one of the great resignation speeches. no. Uh, but then that's part of the, uh, I mean, uh, the myth of, uh, of Johnson. I mean, he's, you know, he's a very effective speaker in the sense that, uh, you know, when he's speaking to a crowd, because what he does is that he has this kind of mixture of rather high-flown language and classical references, and then he'll shift into the demotic and back again. And so he's got a very unusual way of speaking so that nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. He's, he's basically Shakespeare, is what you're saying. Dennis. Well, that's one way of putting it, but he's... Uh, but in a way, though, often these set-piece uh, speeches, they're not terribly good. And, in, and sometimes it may be because he writes them himself. Himself, that uh, you know, as opposed to having a kind of a writer's room doing it for him, but actually he's you know so he's a kind of a patchy uh, speaker, and this wasn't I think one of the most memorable speeches he's ever made. Patrick, um, it, again looking in from the outside and following the thing on Sky News and BBC and uh, and so forth, it didn't strike me. I mean, some leadership takedowns or some coups are plotted and the resignations are carefully timed before news bulletins and you know there's a sense of uh, a, a hidden hand guiding uh, guiding the knife towards the back or the throat or whatever of the of the leader this didn't look 
from the outside like that. It looked like a sort of a dam burst with the initial two resignations from uh, Sunak and, uh, and, and Sajid Javid. And after that, there was a sort of chaotic sort of sense to it. Is, is that the way it felt from inside? Yeah, definitely. I think, call it a moment of exasperation or catharsis or, as you put it, a dam bursting. There was no, as you say, there was no sense of central coordination at all. I mean, that was the question we were all asking when the health secretary and chancellor resigned within 10 minutes of each other. But it soon became very clear that this was a totally organic and and not unexpected uh, sort of emotional response to the past week the Conservative Party have had. You know, this all started on on Thursday with the uh, resignation of Chris Pincher uh, as Deputy Chief Whip. And, and in, in that period, we've had, you know, Johnson and Johnsonism in microcosm, you know, the evasions, the obfuscations of a, what the Prime Minister knew and when, um, you know, his misjudgments, his tolerance for, um, you know, the slightly seamier parts of British political life and the, the characters who inhabit it. So I do think this was... And perhaps it was always going to end this way, given that the Conservative Party elected a, a, a character. They didn't necessarily elect Boris Johnson for anything other than his uh, for, for his personality, and uh, you know, and also the Brexit thing. But he, they, they they elected a character, and you know, the emotional response to his character was always his greatest asset in terms of uh, electoral assets, and it, thus maybe it was always going to end this way with people, you know, finally having enough and snapping. And that's very much how it felt. You know, everybody has their own limits. I'd say another decisive moment was uh, Nadim Zahawi's first broadcast round as uh, Chancellor on the the Wednesday when it became clear that, uh, you know, Boris Johnson was determined to, you know, soldier on as if it were business as usual. And again, that reinforced all the misgivings Tory MPs had about him, you know, the bunker mentality, his unwillingness to listen. Uh, it was a study in Boris living down to the expectations of uh, MPs and the British people. But it was part of the reason why it was so crazy is because there was no sense of uh, the hidden hand or it being uh, plotted or coordinated. And that's what made it so unpredictable and, and, and febrile. Um you know, when you compare it to, you know, the plot to bring down Tony Blair by the Brownites or uh, the defenestration of David Cameron or the leadership psychodrama that followed or Theresa May's fall, none of this was affected uh, essentially about anything other than Boris Johnson himself. And that's why it's both uh, so tumultuous and so sort of small time at once. And are you getting any sense from MPs around Westminster since you know, today or, or since the resignation yesterday, is there any sense of, you know, look at the Daily Mail this morning, you know, we wonder, you know, if anybody is saying, oh God, what have we done? Or what do we do now? Or, or what's the sense the day after the regicide? Uh, there are very few people in Westminster taking the same line as the Daily Mail. Look, those MPs do exist. Uh, as we speak, he's just made a raft of junior ministerial appointments. It's no coincidence there are uh, you know, MPs elected in 2019 for those seats in the in the Red Wall in the North and Midlands are overrepresented in that reshuffle because they are still true believers in the Boris Johnson pro- project, regardless of the uh, the faults and the fall of the man himself. But no, I think you know, I think there's 
the question people are asking, if, if people are worried about the departure of Boris Johnson, it is not because of his virtues or any great admiration for a man. It's because it poses really difficult strategic questions for the future of the Conservative Party, which is what are they without Boris Johnson to bind them? Who, whose party are they now? They no longer have the three things that made the 2019 election so successful for them, which was Brexit, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And without those questions, they are a mess of, sorry, without those qualities, they are a mess of contradictions on uh, on the economy on the demographic makeup of their uh, of their uh, electoral base uh, and a host of other stuff so you know i think if people are mourning the passing of boris johnson they're not mourning him they're mourning the uh, you know the electoral certainty he fleetingly gave them Dennis, there's i suppose there's two things on the order of business now there's actually finally getting johnson out the door of number 10 because of course He's done yesterday, has indicated his intention to resign. He's still Prime Minister, as Patrick says, he's still making ministerial appointments. He seems to be intent on staying there in number 10 for at least two months. What's the current thinking on how the process is is going going to take its shape over the coming weeks? I think for now, they certainly have decided to leave him where he is and uh, sort of hope that... That, that idea of the caretaker prime minister that's dead is it well it's gone certainly for now i mean you never know how he he behaves but i mean I, you know there's obviously always the suspicion that he's hoping that something will turn up and that he'll somehow contrive uh, to to stay there and uh, you know i don't know something anything state of emergency anything could happen but that actually but obviously everybody's watching him like a hawk and so if it appeared that uh, you know that he was going to try to dig in then i think they would be able to move against him but for now they do seem to have decided that it's better just to leave it this way and try to get through the uh, the leadership contest fairly quickly. It's a two-stage process so that the first stage is that the MPs uh, have a series of exhaustive ballots and they then out of those select two candidates who then go forward to a ballot of the entire membership. And so they're hoping that they'll get the uh, MPs end of the thing done within the next couple of weeks before they break up for the summer recess and that then they'll go out and uh, they'll have hostings around the country and then you could get somebody in place maybe even early September. And so that means then that, uh, you know, the hope is that he couldn't do too much damage. He's not going to really be allowed to do very much. I mean, you know, it's been made very clear that he's operating in a very constrained sort of uh, political space. And so no new ideas, no brand new initiatives, nothing dramatic is supposed to happen. That's the theory, at least. But what stops him from doing that? Well, nothing, actually, except that uh, they could all move against him again and suddenly they can decide then, right, uh, put all your belongings into a cardboard box and we're marching you to the door. You know, that's the, uh, you, know, uh, you know, so in other words, they could do the thing they didn't do yesterday mm-hmm. uh, or the day before. You know, so that's what, uh, you know, so, so I suppose that's the constraint. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey! Get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Which brings us then, uh, Patrick, to... 
the runners and riders. And there is a list, there is a list which makes the, uh, the list of, of runners in the Grand National seem rather brief. Um, uh, as, as, of, as of last count, I think there's, is there 13 or, or, or 14 of the runners and riders? I have from this morning's Irish Times, Liz Trust, Nadim Zahawi, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordant, Sajid Javid, Tom Tugendhat, Jeremy Hunt, Ben Wallace, Michael Gove, uh, latest Titan to enter the race this morning was John Barron, of whom I have never before heard, I confess. Am I leaving anyone out? I, I, I think a lot of his colleagues are of broadly the same <laughs> view, ditto uh, lobby journalists in Westminster. You say the Grand National, the other uh, less flattering analogy being used is wacky races, uh, which again, I think probably flatters some of the people at the lower end of that list. It's a really open field and that's precisely because unlike in 2019 when Tory MPs were broadly agreed on the diagnosis, or rather a majority of Tory MPs were broadly agreed on the diagnosis of the party's problems, which was Theresa May's Brexit policy, uh, regardless of whether they agree with it or not, had led the party to the brink of electoral oblivion. Don't remember, they came uh, they came fourth uh, in, the, uh, in the European elections uh, that year, or maybe even fifth, uh, and it looked like they were going to lose uh, hundreds of seats to uh, the Brexit party and the Liberal Democrats. Um, and so the only way to, uh, as Boris Johnson put it, defeat Corbyn, unite the country, uh, deliver Brexit and energise Britain, dude, as he said in his, uh, in his opening speech as Prime Minister in 2019, uh, was to elect Boris Johnson. Now, given the diagnosis, we just need someone who isn't Boris Johnson and the party is really quite divided on questions of electoral strategy, on tax... Uh, on a host of other issues, the field is really open and there is no, not necessarily a standout candidate. Of the people you've just named, the people figuring in my conversations with MPs, uh, you know, most prominently, uh, I'd say it's, uh, you know, I imagine it's sort of the same for Dennis, Rishi Sunak, who despite being ruled out earlier this year over uh, over the uh, his wife's tax affairs, his wife's non-domicile status, um, I think has been broadly underpriced. I think he's still um, at the top of people's minds. Sajid Javid obviously stole a march on the rest of the field when he quit and delivered his Geoffrey Howe-style resignation statement to the Commons Chamber on Wednesday. Um, Tom Tugendhat, despite having never held ministerial office, uh, uh, has is genuinely commanding quite a lot of support, particularly among MPs who don't want to back a, a collaborator with the Johnson regime. Might being an outsider in that vein actually be an advantage in this? Yes, exa- exactly. You know, it's hard to overstate the extent of the disgust among Conservative backbenchers and even ministers of lower rank with how the Cabinet have handled themselves over the past six months or so. They believe, you know, the Cabinet have had ample opportunity to uh, arrest this slide into chaos, uh, you know, from Partygate uh, onwards and onwards over the past six months by standing up to Boris Johnson and they see a fairly supine, spineless cabinet who uh, put their own positions ahead of the good of the party again and again. Um, and I'd say Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid have salvaged some of their reputations by quitting as early as they did. But they, it's, it's still a big structural obstacle for anyone who was in cabinet and who until last week was dutifully going out on the telly and on the radio, uh, you know, defending positions that lots of Tory MPs now think were indefensible, uh, to then stand before the party and say, well, I'm the person who is, uh, who is going to give us a clean start. That's the phrase Tom Toonheart is using. Particularly as Keir Starmer, when he uh, gave his speech earlier today, 
turned the logic Tory MPs and ministers use against him for propping up Jeremy Corbyn back on Tory leadership contenders saying, you know, don't stand before the country and promise a fresh start if you were supporting Boris Johnson until five minutes ago. So it's very, it's a very tricky sell to exhausted and exasperated backbenchers if you're in the cabinet to then present yourself as a, a, a clean skin. Dennis, continue that process of whittling down for me. Uh, Liz Truss seems to be the front runner. Um, people in Dublin I speak to, and we might come to talk about, you know, uh, the effect of all this on Anglo-Irish relations and the protocol in, in a little bit, but people in Dublin I speak to say to me, please God, anyone but Liz Truss. Mind you, you read them out a couple of other names then, and they say, well, maybe almost anyone but uh, Liz Truss. Well, I think there was, as Patrick was saying, the whole, the field is, first of all, very open. It's also quite dynamic, so that, uh, again, as Patrick was saying, Rishi Sunak's star appeared to be waning, but then because he got in Fairly early, his star went back up again because he uh, he went with uh, with Sajid Javid. And meanwhile, Nadim Zahawi, who, if we were talking a few weeks ago, we would have said was a rising star, he took Rishi Sunak's job as Chancellor of the Exchequer on Tuesday night, and by Wednesday evening, he was telling Boris Johnson that he should go. So he's looking uh, rather less impressive right now. So the whole thing is like sort of um, politics is like a game of uh, snakes and ladders, but this is like snakes and ladders on speed or on crack, and. It's going in all different directions and very, very fast. And so the other thing is, you know, what people always say about conservative leadership contests is that they don't choose the leader for who they are. They choose them for who they're not. And so an awful lot of the time, a candidate emerges and it's all about stopping them. There are a lot of people in the parliamentary party who would like to stop Liz Truss. Why? Why do they want to stop her? Well... Either they, th- you know, there are lots of reasons. Uh, you know, none of them are, are very complimentary. Obviously, one of them would be that she's a bit of a phony. She was a Remainer who's now kind of, uh, you know, uh, transformed herself into uh, a kind of a, a Brexiteer hardliner in embracing this uh, protocol bill. Uh, the idea that she's something of an opportunist. Also, just the idea that she's really not all that impressive uh, in uh, you know in the various roles she's been in and so so there are a lot of people who wouldn't want her then there are people uh, now because Rishi Sunak has kind of an, um, emerged uh, the Praetorian guard around Boris Johnson who are the disappointed remnant of Jacob Rees-Mogg and company they've now started to uh, dis Rishi and suggest that he, you know, identify him as the culprit, say that actually he wasn't a very good chancellor, that, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, that all his policies were wrong. He was an obstacle in the way of cutting taxes or doing all the things that conservative voters really want. And so, uh, you know, so it's likely that a front runner or two might emerge. Somebody will try to knock them down. And then somebody tends to emerge quite often just for, because they are not whoever it happens to be. Theresa May was not Boris Johnson or Michael Gove or whoever. Uh, David Cameron was not David Davis. You know, people are usually not, uh, as opposed to you're chosen for who they are. Sorry, but one thing I'd just add briefly about Liz Truss is, uh, as much as she's been talked up over the past months and a couple of years as a inevitable favourite, her natural constituency now, given how she's handled herself over Brexit and the protocol, is confined to the uh, to the Eurosceptic right of the party, and what's been fascinating, and this uh, you know reinforces Dennis's point about perceptions of her as a, you know a, an opportunistic 
Brexiteer rather than a Brexiteer of conviction is look at who else from that wing of the party has declared over the past couple of days. Suela Fernandez, uh, Suela Braverman, rather the um, the Attorney General, again very hardline, uh, sort of ideal or dogmatic on Brexit questions has been for a very long time. And ditto Steve Baker, the uh, you know the High Priest of uh, hard Brexit. So. It's a it's a small pool, a smaller pool than it once was for Liz Truss to be fishing in. And there are, um, you know, very uh, accomplished organisers in Steve Baker and uh, Suella Braverman fishing in it as well. If, if I may, sir, there, there, there is one other factor, though, uh, which is that if you look back, if you take, if you step back from this whole thing, the the ministers turned on Boris Johnson because the MPs had turned on him. And the MPs turned on him because the people had turned against him. And so uh, the reason that all of this has happened, really, is because the Conservatives have been sliding in the polls. Boris Johnson had become a liability. And you know, one factor that's, that is going to drive these people, especially the MPs, is the question of who's like more likely to help them to keep their seat, whether the Conservatives win the next election or not, who is more likely to you know, to, to safeguard their seat. And there, they will be looking at the polls. And that's where it does speak for now for Rishi Sunak in that he, according to, the, to one poll, is the only one that appears to outpoll uh, Keir Starmer. That's partly because he's more familiar than other people. But, you know, so I think that there will be, you know, amid everything else, there probably will be a little shaft of rational thinking that will come through as well in terms of people making their decision. Ben Wallace? Yeah, he's obviously popular because... Uh, he's popular with the members, isn't he? He's very popular with the members. He's a soldier. Everybody loves a soldier if you're a conservative activist. And he, uh, you know, so he's popular because of that. And, uh, you know, the government is perceived as having done a good job on Ukraine. He, uh, you know, is the Minister for Defence, you know, the Secretary of State for Defence. He also distinguished himself pretty well during the uh, rather chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, last year, where other parts of the government didn't do all that well. And so he's got a good image. The problem is that people don't know very much about him beyond the fact that uh, he is a soldier. Which he he mentions from time to time. And he doesn't really sort of, people don't know necessarily all that much about his other policies. He was a Remainer. He's actually socially quite liberal. Uh, You know, he hasn't really spoken very much about the economy. So I think, you know, he's going to have to be tested in uh, in, over the next couple of weeks, and he probably will be. Uh, And then they will decide whether he is actually the what they're looking for or not. Patrick, one of the things that is worried about uh, in Dublin is that over the course of the campaign in the next couple of weeks within the parliamentary party, that uh, loyalty to the protocol policy and to the legislation that's been pushed through uh, the, uh, the House at the moment will become kind of a test that candidates who wish to get votes from that side of the party have to pass and that there will be a sort of an arms race of Brexit hardiness, as it were. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. I think Tory candidates here will be expected to sort of pledge fealty to three things, at least. The first, I think, is the protocol bill, which is a a litmus test of, as you say, uh, how pucker or kosher they are on Brexit. The second thing is the Rwanda policy, uh, you know, shipping asylum seekers out to Rwanda. And the third thing, I think, will be tax cuts, which are really animating the Conservative Party. But, you know... As we've seen, uh, both in the Conservative Party and other parties, what candidates are seen to say during campaign um, often aren't the policies they enact in government. And obviously, in a party as regicidal as the Tory party, that's always a risk. But say, 
if Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, wins the leadership, you know, despite having pledged uh, that he will maintain, you know, the principle of legislating to override the protocol, I think we'll obviously see a different approach because within cabinet, he was one of the voices saying the legislation should be toned down, uh, you know, out of fear for st- st- uh, sparking a trade war with the EU at this, uh, you know, pretty uh, dicey moment for the global economy. So, you know, it'll be the small print of the pledges that really matter. Dennis will remember, you know, when the uh, when Westminster's reporters were sat in the... Um, sat in the uh, committee room 14 watching the hustings between Tory leadership candidates in, in uh, hoping to succeed Theresa May. Every one of them was asked whether they agreed um, with the EU's definition of a hard border and all of them essentially gave the headline answer of yes, but it was interesting seeing them all give, you know, dancing on the head of a pin, giving slightly different semantics on that question. So I suspect, you know, when they're asked, do you pledge to bring forward the protocol bill or keep with that course, will... All of them will say yes, but the devil will be in the detail. And the answer Rishi Sunak gives will obviously not be, by any definition, the same answer that Liz Truss gives or, or Steve Baker gives or Sajid Javid gives. For sure. Uh, there could be a lengthy hustings, of course. You may have to bring supplies into the room. Dennis, finally to you. Um, Michal Martin expressed the hope yesterday that the departure of Johnson and the change in leadership in Downing Street would allow for a reset in... Uh, Anglo-Irish relations. Do you think that entirely prospects for such a reset? Do you think it entirely depends on who the new leader is, or is there a general mood uh, there for better relations with Dublin, a, a deal with Brussels, and to move on to the domestic agenda? I think Boris Johnson going is actually the removal of the biggest obstacle to a deal on the protocol because uh, chiefly really he was too weak to agree to any deal that might be available. And if you think about you know what the uh, advocates of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill say, they actually speak about it as a negotiating uh, tool, and they're saying that this you know uh, that they that, you know they hope that they wouldn't have to use it because they hope that they, it will persuade the European Union to come and make the necessary compromises. Now the compromises they're looking for is a complete rewriting of the protocol, which is not going to happen. But nonetheless, I think you know all those candidates can go in and say they. Support the protocol bill, and uh, and they all do. In fact, you know, or most of them do. Uh, but then, once a new leader is elected, I think they will try to reset the relationship with the European Union, and they'll discover very fast that the only way that you can do that is to resolve the problem of the protocol. And I think also it is true that the European Union did conclude that there wasn't much point in offering any concessions, more concessions to Boris Johnson, because he wasn't in a position to do anything with them. Whereas some somebody new coming in, then I think there might be a different tone. They might be prepared to find some more creative ways of dealing with the implementation. And so I think that, uh, you know, that almost, almost whoever comes in, I think the exceptions to that are uh, Liz Truss and Suella Braverman because they're too uh, closely wedded to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. But I think anybody else who comes in, uh, I think, is in a position to improve relations with Europe. And if they improve relations with Europe, then they'll improve relations with Dublin. Well, it sounds like you guys have an exciting couple of weeks uh, ahead of you, but we are very grateful to you both for making time for us this afternoon. Dennis Taunton, thanks a million. And Patrick McGuire, great to have you on. 